Welcome to the Veterans for Peace radio hour and podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. I was found alongside a ditch, unconscious. That was kind of my introduction to the to the people I was, was going to be dealing with. So thus begun my, my attempt to ban these weapons. That was Demacio Lopez, activist, author, and depleted uranium expert. You will hear more from Demacio in the horror of depleted uranium and the danger he has brought on himself from his efforts to make this depleted uranium, this toxic metal, illegal. But first, my name is Harvey Bennett. I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Jim Wolgamuth. We are members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and on your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you who keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on Donate and keep Jim and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. And if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, go to our website also at veteransforpeace.org. On Friday, Harvey and I joined a Zoom hosted by the Veterans for Peace No Nukes group, of which we are a part. There was a special guest, Demacio Lopez, and he was asked to come talk about depleted uranium, a subject that I was not nearly as aware of as I should be, and I expect most of you aren't either. So the first voice you will hear is Jerry Condon of Veterans for Peace and the Golden Rule Project introducing Demacio. So let's get to it. Demacio Lopez, who's got 37 years of uh, researching depleted uranium weapons and related issues. Say a little bit about himself and his own history. Uh, before he gets started on his presentation. Uh, welcome, Demacio. Thank you. Well, the way I got involved in this is that I had been away for a long time from my hometown. I When I came back to Socorro in uh, 1985, there were some huge explosions that were taking place less than two miles from my house on the Socorro Mountain. The prevailing winds come from that direction, and our drinking water in Socorro comes from that mountain as well. We have a lot of wells out there that come into the community. And uh, when I I discovered, uh, unbeknownst to the people in Socorro, that depleted uranium was being tested right next door to them on top of their water supply. I found out that they had been doing this since 1973. And they had been testing this uh, weapons there since 1973. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 1985, I, I started investigating this and found out that, uh, in fact, uh, they had been testing uh, weapons made out of uranium. Uh, they called it depleted uranium. Shortly after I learned this, I, I tried to, I talked to the officials at New Mexico Tech, New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, because they were the people who promoted this. And it was one of their divisions called TERA, T-E-R-A, Terminal Effects Research and Analysis Group. They were the people that began in 1973, but they had actually begun earlier than that. In 1949, they had begun to do tests on 
trying to figure out how to how to use these bullets and uh, develop them. They did a lot of developing uh, of the weapon, along with uh, Los Alamos National Laboratories and uh, outfit in uh, in Albuquerque, the uh, Sandia National Laboratories. So they they had done a lot of work by the time they finally started testing the weapon in 1973. And, and not only did they start using or testing the weapon, there were other states and other facilities across the United States that were testing these weapons at the same time. These facilities are depleted uranium testing and uh, manufacturing facilities across the United States. So they're all over the place. And it's no wonder that they say that this depleted uranium won't go more than uh, a few hundred meters from the site of the uh, uh, of where it was used and where it disintegrated into nanoparty nano-sized particles. Uh, it seems like we uh, pretty much saturated the country. A book called Uranium Battlefields at Home and Abroad: The Use of Depleted Uranium by the U.S. Department of Defense. I was one of the authors of that uh, book. I, I located a lot of these sites. When I found out that they were testing them there at that New Mexico Tech, I, I approached the officials there, the president of the school, and uh, I, want, I told him I want to know what was happening there. My family, my mother particularly, was a little was very upset about about these explosions because they would knock the the china off the closets and the cupboards and into and they would break. And uh, this was uh, really disturbing. And these explosions would have, they'd have 10, 12 a day, maybe even more. Huge explosions. They, they cracked the walls, the adobe walls of the people there in the town. And the people were, were just didn't know uh, what was going on. And, and then I found out that it was depleted uranium. And what I did was I went to a Board of Regents meeting at New Mexico Tech. And I asked them, what are you testing on this mountain? And how long do you plan to do this? They were very evasive on the answers. They said, oh, we're just testing uh, regular explosives like we have since 1949 and some special projects for the military that we do for them. And they didn't say any more than that. So I, I went home after was at this Regents meeting, went back to my mom and I said, mom, I, I said, uh, I don't think there's a problem. I said, it's just regular explosives. And they told me that, you know, this, this is not going to go on forever. Sometimes they're a little loud, but it's not going to be a problem, according to them. I was a professional golfer at the time, and I had come, come home for Christmas. And this was back in November, December of, of 1985. And I asked this president of this school, you know, what or the regions, what was going on. And like I said, they, they were pretty evasive about their answers. Four days later, the newspaper, uh, El Defensor Chieftain, uh, had covered that meeting, and they did an article on it, and they did a response as well, what, what their position was. About four days after this came out in the newspaper, I stepped out of my house one morning, and I saw about five fairly large boxes sitting in my front lawn, and I thought, oh, somebody brought their garbage out to my house. So I went over and opened the boxes. They were very neatly packed, and I opened a box and I started looking at it, and I was so surprised. It was, well, let me put it this way. The information in there was about the entire history of the testing of depleted uranium at New Mexico Tech. Why they tested it, who they tested it for, what were the health and environmental consequences of testing in the town, 
what other facilities across the United States did this as and uh, there was a lot of things in these boxes and and you know I I knew a little bit about radiation from the from the Trinity blast and 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 uh, the subsequent problems that uh, people had that lived near the Trinity blast that was pretty much the only thing I knew about radiation and so this was a a new thing to me after getting this information I went to the uh, president of the school oh I called him and asked him for an appointment I told him I had some information that I'd like to talk to him about and uh, we made an appointment the next day I showed up out to his office I brought uh, he was really uh, uh, you know like real helpful and real polite and you know shook my hand and everything seemed to be fine he had seen me at the board of regents meeting and I, I knew who he was too I said to him, I said, you know, I said, I've got some documents here. I think I think you ought to take a look at them. Uh, it has to do with the answers that the regents uh, gave me when I was there. And uh, I have these documents. I had specific documents that I wanted to show him. There was about four or five of them. One said, and this was this was uh, primary data. This, uh, this wasn't, you know, secondhand information. Boxes came from a direct, the director of Terra, who had been the director for decades. He was one of the people that helped develop this weapon. He had gotten brain cancer, and the school uh, released him. He wasn't there no more. I let him go. And uh, I guess he might have got a little upset and put all these documents into these boxes. With, with all this information, uh, I picked out like three or uh, looked at stuff. I, it was pretty difficult to understand. Uh, I, I didn't know too much about radiation. So I, I asked him, I, I took one document that said that the testing had begun in 1973 of these weapons. And another document explained the health and environmental hazards of uh, the testing of depleted uranium and what it did to people. Pretty much what I found in Iraq. I showed him this documents. And his smile and good nature turned into something very different. His face turned totally white. Remember, they had been doing this for quite a few years, this testing. Nobody knew about it. They kept it a secret. The people that knew were the, the congressmen, the state representatives, the mayor of the town, uh, the, the uh, county commissioner. They kept that thing mum. And no one in town knew that these things were happening. His face turned white looking at this stuff. And then I, I asked him, I said, said what, what, what's this depleted uranium all about? I, I don't know what it is, except other than what it says here in these documents. And he looked at me and he said, boy, don't you understand English? It's depleted of uranium. You should go to school and learn English. Well, I had had racial insults uh, growing up as a young boy. And I thought those days were over. Obviously not. I didn't say anything to him. I just looked at I couldn't believe what he was telling me. This is the president of the school. And I was asking, I was showing him information that I had and, and wanted some answers. The only answer he, he gave me was what I just said. And I was kind of in awe that he would react this way. I went home on my bicycle thinking about what he had said. And what what it, what had happened with with that uh, meeting I had with him, and I, I was quite disturbed because I was getting ready to go back to Yuma, Arizona, where I was a golf, had been a golf professional for fifteen years, 
and I and I saw the attitude that he had, and and then the the documents they led me to believe that that you know I needed to do something about this. I had to do something. I had all that information. I put together a group called Save Our Mountain there in Socorro. There was about fifteen people in that group. A couple of them were lawyers, uh, and others were um, university. Uh, one was a university professor. So there were very well qualified people uh, that, that could understand uh, these documents. We started going through the documents and then we began a campaign to advise the people in the community what was, what was going on. And they were in shock. They, it was hard for them. They couldn't believe it. But with the documents that I had, there was no getting around it. Some of those documents had ink on them. They weren't all copies. It went back to 1949 when they, when they began the development of these weapons along with some other facilities. Not only those facilities, I learned what they were testing at those facilities. I learned what they were manufacturing, what kind of weapons. And uh, the defense contractors that they, a lot of these are, are defense contractors that you see here. They're not all military installations. It, it became a problem for me. But I, I had a threat. I had threats on my life. I, one e evening, I was uh, with some friends at the local bar, the Capitol Bar there in Socorro, having a, having a beer. And, and, and I had talked to a lawyer, one of our lawyers in, in Save Our Mountain. And, he, and he, she told me, it was she, she told me, he said, people like, like this president don't say things like this unless they mean it. So you better be careful. And, and she said, well, you know, make sure you're around people and, you get, and you're not going anywhere by yourself, especially at night. So it started to get dark and I was in this barn with some friends and I said, well, I said, I better, I better leave now. Went home on my bike and about a block from two blocks from my house, everything turned black. Several hours later, I opened my eyes and I was in the hospital, Socorro General Hospital. My head was swelled up like a, like a basketball, had a broken collarbone. I had uh, sores throughout my body. I was found alongside a ditch unconscious. That was kind of my introduction to the, to the people I was, was going to be dealing with. So thus begun my, my attempt to ban these weapons. I was, at the time, I was thinking mostly banning them in Socorro. Uh, I wasn't thinking about a, a global ban to, to ban a, glo a, a global campaign to ban the weapons. I was just thinking about Socorro because of what happened to me. When I left the hospital, I, I went and I Stayed with some friends, stayed away from that town. I was afraid for, for my life. And uh, after about three months, I started feeling a little bit better. But during that time, I had like explosions. I felt like explosions were going off in my head. I had some serious uh, head injuries. It, it was a pretty depressing part of my life. I, 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 I was felt, you know, like somebody was trying to kill me, basically. And, you know, one doesn't have a... Uh, you know, it's kind of an, an uneasy feeling. So I stayed away from there for three months. And when I came back to Socorro, uh, after I felt a little better, I went, went, of course, to my parents' house, and my mom. And the first thing my mother told me was, Junior, you need to stop what you're doing. You're causing us a lot of problems here. And my dad, who I really respected and is a wonderful man and smart, he said, yeah, Junior, you should be careful. I, I, you should stop what you're doing. And here I was, my body broken practically, and my, my own parents denouncing me. I went looking for the Save Our Mountain people. 
they had scattered. They were afraid. So that was a start. All of this time, I've been researching this subject and trying to get uh, accurate information that, that so that I might at some point be in a position to uh, help ban these weapons at a, at a global level. Uh, and I should tell you, you know, at one point while going a after this, after I got my strength back and and uh, started uh, going back to studying. I went to the University of New Mexico, and then I had a chance to look over those documents and take courses in physics and uh, research methods and, uh, and English, because like the president of the school told me, he said, I had to learn English, so I took some advanced courses in English. So uh, the uh, Save Our Mountain group was, some of them came back together, and uh, we had a, an interesting visitor come to visit us from Los Lunas, New Mexico. His name was Jerry Wheat. He was one of these soldiers that was one, one of the injured, injured soldiers from the uh, depleted uranium in the, in, the, in the Persian Gulf War. And he came to tell us about his experience. The, the Persian Gulf War lasted from January 17th, 1991 to February 28th. 1991, a little about a month and a half. And there were 219 U.S. casualties during that time. 154 were killed in battle, and 65 died as a result of non-battle ca causes. So we got like 219 people. So how did they get killed? Well, the Gulf War casualties, the deaths, 35 of them were killed. And uh, 72 were wounded, resulting from friendly fire involving crews of armored vehicles struck by depleted uranium. This Los Lunas visitor, Jerry Wheat, came to Socorro to speak to our veterans there and to the community about what he had gone through. He lived to tell of his experience. He was wounded by friendly fire on February 27, 1990, as he was driving a Bra Bradley armored personnel carrier. He did not know at the time that he had been hit by DU. He said he was knocked unconscious by the, by the first of two shells, and his clothing uh, caught fire. He said the skin on his neck and lower back was burning from the DU shrapnel in his body. He was awarded a Purple Heart. He returned with the pieces of uh, DU shrapnel embedded in his body. Jerry Wheat says he has had bad uh, joint pains, abdominal problems, headaches. He went from 220 pounds to 160. VA told him he was suffering from post-traumatic stress. Jerry at the time was married, had three children. I got to meet him there in Los Lunas. And uh, that was uh, a very long time ago. I tried to contact him recently and was unable to find him. He ended up moving to the uh, to the East Mountains here in Albuquerque. He lost his job eventually. He worked at the post office. He got a divorce, left his house in Los Lunas, and moved into a home in the East Mountains where he lives today. And he's pretty much uh, out of contact. It's hard to hard to find him. I've been trying to get a hold of him lately, and I can't can't locate him anymore. So I got some. We got information directly from somebody that was involved in there. It wasn't just somebody that wrote something or figured something out mathematically or something. This was a real person that experienced all these things that happened to him, and he told us about them. Then uh, 
we were, of course, in the town, very considered, we we're very, very concerned about the, our water supply and what might happen there. Well, on October 2006, the Coro's wor worst nightmare became a reality. The New Mexico Environment Department issued a notice of violation of the New Mexico drinking water regulations to the Socorro water system. Socorro's drinking water was found to be contaminated with high levels of uranium. The utilities director of uh, Socorro said the uranium in the water is naturally occurring and is not depleted uranium. He said that the uranium levels have always been the same. It's just that the EPA changed the limits. You're listening to Damasio Lopez, anti-depleted uranium activist. So I think it's probably time to tell you just what this depleted uranium is. DU is a pyrophoric metal. Thus, when a projectile made of DU strikes a heavily armored tank, the force of impact causes the DU to ignite and burn at such intense temperatures that the projectile literally melts its way through the armor, melting the armor as well. But once inside the tank, the burning metal typically ignites fuel or armaments and creates a secondary explosion. That destroys the tank and kills the crew. DU ignites spontaneously at temperatures of 600 to 700 degrees Celsius. When a DU penetrator strikes a hard target, it results in temperatures of more than 1200 degrees Celsius. In the process of this conflagration, submicroscopic particles of uranium oxide ceramics are produced, creating an aerosol of radioactive particles that are in the nanosize. To give you an example of what, what that means, what is, what is a nanosize particle? Nanosized particles are 1,000 times smaller than a speck of dust and go wherever the wind go takes them. They can also be obviously easy, easily inhaled. They're like a gas. They eventually land on soil and can easily be suspended unless they settle in watersheds. That's what happens. Uh, studies have shown that between 10% and 75% of the DU in the penetrator can be converted to this minute particles. Particles smaller than five microns can become permanently lodged deep in, in, in within the lungs when inhaled. Actually, the, the nanoparticles are smaller than microns in diameter. Uh, they, these can become permanently lodged deep in the lungs when inhaled. And because you, these uranium oxides have very low solubility, they remain in the body for decades. Unfortunately, if the pass is any guide, local civilian populations are unlikely to be warned when DU weapons are used, even if DU contaminates their food or water supply. Prior to the Gulf War, the U.S. Army was aware of the potential for DU contamination to cause health problems among civilian populations. Yet the Department of Defense did nothing to warn the inhabitants of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq about DU contamination of their air, soil, and water. Rather, U.S. Army reports express more concern about public outcry and future restrictions on the use of DU weapons than about contaminating lands at home and abroad and poisoning soldiers and civilians. A lot of studies were done prior to this uh, 
1943, the U.S. War Department proposed a research into the use of radioactive material as a military weapon to General L.R. Grobe, who headed the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, New Mexico. One of the possible military uses of radioactive material against enemy personnel would be as a gas warfare agent. The material would be ground into particles of microscopic size and would be distributed in the form of dust or smoke by ground fire projectiles, land vehicles, airplanes, or aerial bombs. In this form, it would be inhaled by personnel. It could also be developed in li liquid. In 1990, the U.S. Army Service and Technology Center warned of the poss a possibility that conventional explosives could be used by threat force to disseminate radioactive materials from reactor waste or radium and radioactive isotopes of cesium and cobalt from radioactive from uh, therapeutic uh, sources on the battlefield. So this was the beginning of their research. And since that time, they continued doing the research. And in 1947, they they uh, came to Socorro and, uh, and uh, continued their research and uh, development and testing. And to this day, they're testing them there today. Probably I'm in Bernalillo, New Mexico. I left there uh, a long time ago when I realized the danger I was in. I had a job, environmental ch chairman of the Environmental Awareness Committee of Socorro City and Socorro County. And I had uh, made a request in that position to have a testing of, uh, to test the, test the site for contamination of depleted uranium. I had asked for this. It was a formal request. I was an official from the city and county of Socorro. And the Environment Department went ahead and accepted it. Governor Carruthers was, was the governor at that time. Mm -hmm. And they did the test in the Socorro Mountains. And they found that it was the testing sites were all contaminated. So then they checked the water sources. Mm -hmm. Some on, uh, at the golf course there uh, in Socorro, which is at the base of the Socorro Mountain, near the base, and they found cont uh, contamination levels in the water they were using on the golf course. You're listening to Damasio Lopez, anti-depleted uranium act. And another thing that's taking place is uh, a global call to action. With the things that are happening in the Ukraine, uh, I think it's an appropriate thing to do right now. And I'm hoping that uh, the organization will, will help me with this. Uh, right. The uh, ICBUW, uh, International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, is one of the top groups uh, in the world that deal with this issue. And um, in fact, I have a meeting with them next week uh, to discuss this uh, global call to action. and Also, what, what we're going to do about the situation in the Ukraine now that we know for sure that depleted uranium is being sent there and with the intent to use it. And from my understanding, they already have begun. So, Damasio, a couple of things. You would, you just touched on Ukrainian. Couldn't the Russians consider this quite an escalation on our part? And then your three-page document, can, can people get it? And third, then how do they follow you or how do they get in touch with you? Where, where should they go to try and help your cause? First of all, I'm really excited about this global call to action. What people can do is take this global call to action and follow some of the information that's on here. It's just going to be a one page and it's going to ask you to contact the members of the security council. That's correct. They're, they're the ones that have the power to ban <clears throat> weapons up to now. 
some of my colleagues that like ICBUW and others and have have uh, worked with the subcommissions on uh, subcommission on human rights and other subcommissions and they've put together a resolution to uh, ban these weapons and this resolution has gone to this uh, security council members two or three I don't know how many times I lost count they reject it every time any one of these uh, five members permanent members of the security council can just say no we we're not going to we're not going to have a hearing on this and they do that i think they've done that two or three times these people that i'm talking about uh, the representative from china france the russian federation united kingdom and the united states the, these members that are rejecting it is it primarily the us or is it china and russia too or uh well china and russia to their convenience right now they'd like to attack the united states uh you know because they know that uh, that we're sending them in and we're going to use it uh there also has been uh surveys done by a demining group in ukraine uh ordinance guide geneva international center for humanitarian mining explosive ordinance ordinance guide for ukraine uh in this uh, guide they they talk about uh, DU being fired from Russian tanks. I don't know to what extent, uh, but these people here found projectiles out in, in the battlefield in Ukraine and uh, identified it as Russian-made uh, uh, depleted uranium projectiles. I'm going to call on myself for a second to comment on, on that uh, because I, I guess it was the UK, the United Kingdom, that first announced they're going to send depleted uranium weapons into Ukraine. And yes, uh, Russia does consider that to be an escalation, Jim. And as a matter of fact, uh, Russia's President Putin responded directly to that, saying that the introduction of depleted uranium weapons would be the introduction of nuclear weapons into, you know, and of course they are different, uh, significantly different. But that was his response. And then more recently, he's, I believe, also P President Putin has press conference last week, uh, let the world know that Russia also has depleted uranium weapons. So kind of implicitly said, if they're introduced and used, we could do the same. So anyway, it, it does lend itself to an escalation, which is exactly what we don't need in Ukraine, right? Uh, Veterans for Peace is uh, calling for a ceasefire and negotiations to end that war. And we don't see any military solution whatsoever, only further disaster. But so this is just one more example of how this war could get escalate and get out of control. So just uh, that's my statement. And then aside from that, Damasio, I would I wanted to had another question. Um, and that is how widespread, as far as you know, how widespread is the possession and use of of uh, depleted uranium weapons, but I, I'd like to get clear on that. Okay, I, I have a list of the countries 20 years ago that uh, were doing this. Uh, I don't know what the, the current uh, uh, situation is and what uh, exactly how many countries or which countries they are, but I can tell you uh, what was going on uh, back in uh, 1992. U.S. legislation 19, 1992 made it permissible to sell M6, M633s or comparable anti-tank shells containing DU penetrators to these NATO countries. Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Italy, 
Luxembourg, mm -hmm. Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Spain, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. Major non-NATO allies included were Australia, Egypt, Israel, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So they've proliferated these weapons. And uh, in terms of who's who are the major uh, uh, developers and uh, manufacturers and and the people making the money off of this, it is the United States, France, China, Russia, and the United Kingdom. Okay. They, they're the they're the big they're, they're those the, are the, they're the members of the Security Council, aren't they? Yeah, they're the permanent members of the Security Council. Yeah. And the reason they're, they're on the Security Council is because at the time, they were the five countries that possessed nuclear weapons. Well, it has something to do with that. After World War II, they're, they're, they made an arrangement where these countries would uh, have this kind of power. And uh, they've abused it. So Ken Mayers has had his hand up for a while. Uh, yeah, Putin announced recently that depleted uranium weapons are currently being shipped to Belarus. Uh, so we know that that's a, that's a clear response to our Belarus. I heard that they had been sent to Poland as well. Yeah, well, the U.S. is sending them to Poland and the Russians are sending them to Belarus. Kind of tit for tat there. But I was wondering, Demacio, but my question was whether there have been some epidemiological studies of the medical effects, uh, the health effects of DU uh, where they're being tested. I, I have some documents here. These are documents that they were put out by the military and their contractors. It talks about the hazards of depleted uranium. It talks about the hazards to plants, uh, hazards to the soil, uh, and people, of course. And uh, there's a lot of them. You know, a lot, uh, these, these are just a few of the documents that, uh, that are available. And this is some of the stuff that I got out of those five boxes that were left in my lawn. It's uh, very clear to me that these are dual-use weapons. When that projectile hits a tank, it kills soldiers. It didn't kill. It didn't kill all the soldiers all the time. And the reason it didn't was because those Abrams tanks had some kind of a system where they sucked the air out of the tank when 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 they were hit, and uh, getting the uh, the radiation and and the and the uh, particles out of the tank. And also, I should say that when a, a projectile goes into that tank, it superheats the inside of the tank. And when it does this, it will blow up the, in most cases, it'll blow up the, uh, the armament in the, in the tank, which is overhead. They, they were able to escape, you know, they, they weren't all killed. There was only 30, there was 30, that's not only, there was 30, 30 of our troops were killed in these tanks by friendly fire. And 70 of them were able to get out with just shrapnel in their body. And I might say that the people that went to, like Jerry Wheat, that went to the military and the VA asking for help with the shrapnel in their body, they wanted to have it taken out. Uh, they wouldn't do it, but they made a lot of appointments for Jerry to come in periodically so they could check him out and see how he was doing, just like a guinea pig. Finally, Jerry went to his, or his, his dad found a doctor and they went ahead and they and they uh, took out some of the shrapnel out of his body. And when he came to Socorro, he had a little bag full of shrapnel that had come out, just not very much, maybe 10 or 12 pieces that had come out of his body. 
and I, I had a radiation detector. The uh, level of radiation was something like seven times higher than background. And these are this is a shrapnel that came out of his body. Peter Aronson, are you uh, wanting to speak? Yes. In terms of the escalation in, in Ukraine, again, by Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Department of Homeland Security define uh, a dirty bomb as a radiologic agent, any form of uranium is a radiologic agent, dispersed by a conventional explosive. The US Navy defines a poison, what a poison is, which is forbidden from all kinds of past treaties. Um, and DU fits both of those definitions. So one can assume there's going to be some escalation. The other thing in my mind has to do with, uh, with soldiers uh, going in. In case of Gulf War I and Gulf War II, um, it was required if you had a level one or level two exposure. And uh, Demacio, your example way back was a level one exposure. Somebody had shrapnel in them. Uh, level two, people that go into uh, equipment that was hit by DU as a level two exposure. Those are required to be tested. A level three is everything else. If you're in country, downwind, that's a level three exposure. If you ask to be tested, it's required that you be tested. That's for U.S. soldiers. There's only here's my point. There's only one U.S. testing in the United States. That's in Baltimore, the Baltimore VA. They use a testing method. I don't know now. This is some years ago now. That could not do an uh, like DU has an isotopic signature. When you see that signature, you know it's depleted uranium. It's not natural uranium. It's not. U-235 or some of the hot stuff. The UK 20 years ago used a testing method that could detect DU separated from background radiation and everything else. Um, 20 years after exposure, the US testing method tests only urine and they must be submitted within 180 days of exposure and it cannot distinguish background radiation from DU. That's, that's what they already say. So we're up against a lot of uh, uphill issues with the military because it's such a small number of people that have actually been tested and, and everybody is required before, required to get um, pre-deployment DU safety training. How could you get exposed? How do you avoid it? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and almost none have gotten that. So this point is about information is not necessarily classified, but they can say with a lack of testing that as far as we know, DU is safe. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's an alpha. Right. An alpha doesn't go through this, but right. in one month, it's also producing beta and gamma. Yeah. yeah, you know those tests that you're talking about that they, they were doing on the soldiers? Mm -hmm. They found something very interesting in mm -hmm. some of those tests. Not all of them, but some. They found uh, uranium-236 in, uh, in, in the, some of these soldiers. Well, they've been telling us, uh, the nuclear industry and the government and the military, that uh, uranium-235 
doesn't exist in nature. Well, it's a yeah. Well, U two thirty six doesn't exist in nature. It 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 comes from a nuclear reactor. So what what right. does this tell people? When I was in uh, in Iraq, I had my radiation detector. I'm, I was a member of the Citizens Advisory Board for the Department of Energy here in here in New Mexico. And before I went to Iraq, I, I took my radiation detector into the laboratory there at Sandia, and I asked them to, to check it out. And then what I wanted to know was, at what point am I dealing with depleted uranium? How many counts per minute? And it turned out that it was 600 counts per minute. And particularly with my instrument that I was using, they, they, they calculated that. And I, I, I actually did some tests with uh, depleted uranium that they had at the facility. And uh, it came out to 600 counts per minute tops for, for depleted uranium. I mean, if, if I find a projectile uh, intact, I put the, I put the handheld radiation detector uh, with the, uh, next to the projectile, maybe an inch or two from it. I should get 600 counts per minute. On the highway of death, what 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 happened there? Let me tell you, I found projectiles laying on the ground out there, and of course there was the holes in the tanks and all of this sort of stuff. My radiation detector was was reading two thousand four hundred counts per minute. I'm out there in the field uh, with this radiation detector, and uh, all of a sudden I'm I'm looking at something a lot hotter than depleted uranium and I'm wondering about my own health. Yeah, well, and that's I'm, years that's years after uh, the explosion, right? Right, right. They you know this stuff's got a half life of four and a half billion years. So the PACT Act just passed what about a year ago or so. Is the PACT Act covering veterans who claim uh damage from DU, whether they got it through their skin, whether they inhaled it or ingested it, and two in your opinion, uh, is Gulf War syndrome a result of depleted uranium exposure? Thank you. I'll answer the second question first. Yes, uh, all of my studies and all of these studies here, that's what they say. The, that those symptoms uh, that these soldiers had came from depleted uranium. Yeah, I, I, I read that PACT Act uh, wondering about the same thing. And uh, it talked about exposure to radiation and, and also burn sites. I, I learned at one point that some of these burn sites, they were burning depleted uranium. The PAC Act, PAC Act opened up some doors for all of us, except you got to prove that you were exposed to it. Then how do you prove that you have it? Uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a, a presumption to a certain degree, but then you're already suffering from the effects of these things. At the same time, uh, that Congress is trying to uh, 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 privatize the VA system. And so they're trying to turn all this stuff away. So they keep cutting costs for, for people. That's why they keep refusing us. What I was looking at with the Agent Orange was uh, how long it took before they finally acknowledged that it was a problem. And uh, and and I and I got and I think it had a lot to do with paying off people. Uh, giving them compensation for 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 their illnesses. Well, if they wait long enough, people will die, and they won't have to pay them anything. And I think that uh, they consider that's a, I think that's a big consideration that the military has right now when it comes to uh, depleted uranium soldiers who uh, who are who are sick today.
Yes, I wanted to tell you about this book that was written in 1995, I think, by Ramsey Clark, Metal of Dishonor. It was about depleted geranium and it has um, studies. I happened to do a chapter in there and, and I posted it to um, this list, but this was 19, oh, 1997 and they had studies. They studied that not only the veterans got sick, but their children book because it's still sold on amazon what's the name of it again alice metal of dishonor m-e-t-a-l of dishonor and i had been to iraq and i had done some testing there the first time i went there with with uh, u.s soldiers to the highway of death and uh his organization they got a hold of me and said that ramsey clark wanted to know if i would uh go with a group to iraq that he wanted to do some uh surveys for depleted uranium and he heard that i had some knowledge of this and uh I accepted that, his offer, and went to Iraq and went to the Highway of Death and did the testing. Uh, the only problem I had was when he asked me if I would go, I, I said I would, I wonder one condition, and that was that I'd be able to take soil out of the country. I want to take the soil to laboratories outside of Iraq. And uh, he said, okay, that the government uh, gave permission to do that. While I was out in the field gathering the samples, getting ready to take them out of the country and take them to at least three laboratories outside the country and have them tested. Ramsey Clark come to me one day and he said, uh, Iraq changed your mind. You can't take the samples out of the country. This is all a great presentation and obviously a lot of, a lot of interest here in what you're sharing and people are eager to even to learn more. Very interested, and I'm sure we all are, in this campaign you speak yes. of to ban depleted uranium. I think that's something that would be uh, probably a lot of uh, Veterans for Peace members would be interested in. I could also imagine Veterans for Peace making a statement in the immediate future against um, the U.S. and the U.K. and Russia, for that matter, sending depleted uranium weapons into the war in Ukraine. One particular organization, I think that uh, that has had an advantage over others because of the length of time and the people who started this uh, particular organization, it was in 2000, it's called the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, 14 of us met in Berlar, Belgium back in 2000. And uh, we put this organization together specifically to deal with the United Nations and deal with a ban. And they've done a very good job. Uh, and they've gotten, you know, they have to be real careful about, you know, what they say and, and, uh, you know, not, not make mistakes. And I think sometimes, I think that sometimes that curtails them from actually pursuing what, what some of the realities are in this depleted uranium issue. Uh, you know, I've talked about this global call to action that I've, I've been talking about. Uh, this is my, way, you know, after all these 37 years, you know, what do I turn to now? What can I possibly do that I've done before? I've seen things work that actually, that seen things happen that actually work. And, and this may be one of them. And what I would like to do is this, is if I sent a copy to your organization and let you have an edit on the on this global call to action. It's, it's called global call to action to stop the use of depleted uranium munitions. Mm -hmm. And it's not very long, like I said, it, it's, it's a short document. And, uh, and I think that uh, I, what I'd like is to have you look at 
the uh, uh, call, uh, call to action and uh, contribute to it and look it over and see if, that's, uh, if that agrees with, with what you think is a good idea. I want to thank you again uh, for getting the ball rolling here. I've been rolling for 37 years, but give it another push. So there was a small portion of the webinar. And as you can tell, Damasio, gave, Damasio Lopez gave the presentation. And there was a lot of interaction from the group. Uh, and I plan to put the whole thing onto YouTube over the next week or so. But I wanted to give you all information about how you can help Damasio's global call to action with making depleted uranium illegal. First, you can get more information about the dangers of depleted uranium by Googling Damasio Lopez depleted uranium. His name is D-A-M-A-C-I-O Lopez. Uh, there you'll find an extensive script of a presentation Damasio gave to the European Parliament in Brussels, Belgium, on June 10th, 2003, a long time ago. This is not new. This stuff is not new. It's been causing damage for a long time. Then you can call your congressperson and explain to them why we need to stop making and using munitions with depleted uranium. You could also get the book that Alice Slater mentioned, Medal of Honor. Of course, follow Veterans for Peace to see what we are up to and what action we will take. Because I know we'll take something. Okay, from there, uh, Harvey and I had a chance to discuss and reflect on Damasio's presentation and the other comments from the group. So, if you want to see more, like I said, I will be putting this on YouTube and Rumble over the next week or so. So, here's Harvey and I. So, Harvey, we've heard from Damasio Lopez now yeah. about depre depleted uranium. You've been able to do some research. So, what did, what did you find? I found an interesting article by the Middle East Research and Information Project, and this was uh, 2020, talking about birth defects and the toxic legacy of war in Iraq. And they point out the horrendous incidence of uh, often fatal birth defects in uh, babies, uh, especially in Fallujah, which is utterly destroyed by U.S. bombardment. And, and just the whole uh, shock and awe and, and utter devastation of the country's infrastructure and uh, environment, the amount of weaponry that was used in that country is just staggering. So they quote some pediatricians at Fallujah General Hospital who began noticing a wide range of rare birth defects among infants delivered after the start of the occupation in 2003. So, you know, fairly soon. Uh, not only were the birth defects higher in number, but they were very new. They had never seen some of these birth defects before. And uh, so they sounded an alarm internationally publishing, publishing reports of the high rate of birth defects. By 2009, nearly 15% of newborns in these most heavily affected areas of Iraq, uh, congenital birth defects, heart defects, and a majority of them did not survive these defects. Others were just disfiguring defects, you know, mm -hmm. absence of limbs, uh, horrendous, horrendous things. 
uh, hydrocephalus. <clears throat> and they have actually a Facebook page, Fallujah Ho Hospital Facebook page. You might want to wow. look at that. I, I didn't have the stomach to look at it. No. Um, <clears throat> but uh, they feel like this is a, evidence of a much broader story about just the toxic legacy of this war mm -hmm. and how the utter lack of any concern or interest for what was happening to the people of Iraq yeah. defined this war. I mean, that never was a consideration for anything that we did or didn't do. And uh, I think that's a war crime last time I checked. Well, I think, you know. <laughs> However, there's these weapons now that not only kill immediately, but kill long term from Agent Orange to depleted uranium and have effects from generation to generation why aren't they illegal the main reason that from my reading the the main reason why depleted uranium has not been made illegal is because it's so effective as an instrument of destruction you have a high bar there to show that mm -hmm. okay well maybe this is killing some civilians and all that but just think of all the soldiers we're protecting by being able to kill the enemy so efficiently i mean and then the environmental devastation of that country has has never been addressed. No. We've, we've never done anything to repair any of that. And you're talking about Iraq? <laughs> yeah, about Iraq. You could be talking about Vietnam. And, could, and Vietnam, of course, with mm -hmm. Agent Orange, among other things. But, I mean, in just the sheer volume of munitions, mm -hmm. I read in here somewhere that roughly 200,000 to 300,000 bullets were expended in the U.S. Armed Forces for each individual killed. Sometimes. And all of those bullets contained to right. toxic yeah. metals, yeah. which end up in the soil, yeah. and then affects the crops, yeah. and affects the livestock. Uh, it's just mind-boggling uh, what was done to this country. And these shells, they said they're full of lead, they're full of mercury, and uh, these are just bullets with the larger munitions, or even worse. And of course, depleted uranium is thrown in there with everything else. How can you tease out the effects of depleted uranium from all these other toxic uh, components? There's also things like cadmium, uh, arsenic. The list is, is ridiculous. So the only thing about depleted uranium that makes it unique is the resistance to ever making that illegal because it's too effective as a weapon. Yeah, so that's frightening to think about. You mentioned it, Damasio mentioned it, others, that the number of studies go back. They're historical. They're like 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, why has nobody ever followed up on these studies? Why why don't we have any more recent studies? Is that just because capitalism is getting in the way? Because they're effective? Everybody using them. Israel uses them. NATO uses them. Yeah. They were used in Bosnia. They yeah. were, they, I mean, Kosovo. They've Man. been used, uh, I'm sure they were used in Libya. I'm sure they were used in Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia has depleted uranium munitions. You know, a lot of what Damasio had to say, I really thought, well, you know, he's being kind of general about this. He's not really pinpointing specific research and things. He, he just showed all these studies. But, of course, because of the limitations of time, you know, he probably couldn't go into the granular uh, explanations of all that. But I thought, he's overall, he's got a real good point. You know, the government decided a long time ago, depleted uranium 
was too important, find it too dangerous, except to uh, people we want to kill. That's right. So, what, what a disaster. And, you know, we, we hear about it, we hear about it, but up until listening to Damasio, I had no real understanding about the content and the lethality of depleted uranium i mean it's just it's not your grandfather's bullet anymore that's my big issue with this is it's long term it's not just a chunk of lead at the end of a uh, cartridge that goes and hits the one soldier and and depletes him it's the long-term effect on somebody who is wounded but doesn't die and then their children Somebody who comes back after the battle's over and tries to reestablish their lives right there after it's over. And, you know, God bless Damasio and all his efforts. He's trying to make this illegal because when the war's over, it should be over. Yeah. And time to rebuild. And a lot of it is very much like uh, dioxin in Agent Orange. Well, is anyone looking at the health of these citizens of Iraq who've been living with ex- continuous exposure to all these toxic metals in their in the soil in the dust they have dust storms all the time that, it, that would be contaminated you know it's one thing to have uh, a soldier who's over there for a certain t- time you know in, in those conditions and even they show up with terrible things exactly but these populations there that can't go anywhere. No, they're trapped you know, right there. That's, the, that's what they're living in. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you want to do for a song now, Harvey, to finish up this show? <laughs> I don't know what really fits. You know, it's almost like a, the opposite of a, of a song. I mean, okay, protest songs. What have they done to the rain? Oh, the whole stop the rain, buddy. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, we could play that. We've never played that before. Mm-hmm. And what the heck? Yeah. Why not?